This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to episode 47 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and on this episode it is a real treat to be joined by Dick Costello. He was Twitter's COO in 2009 and CEO from 2010 to 2015, a period during which the platform's number of users, revenue, and impact on our world exploded. But years before his tremendous success in the tech world, Dick Costello was a comedy standout, having spent years on the Chicago scene, some with Second City alongside the likes of Steve Carell and Rachel Dratch. And it is to the comedy scene that he has returned post-Twitter, at least part-time, as a special consultant in the writer's room of the HBO comedy series Silicon Valley. The show first went on the air in 2014 when Costello was still at Twitter, but he binge-watched it, became a fan, and hit it off with its showrunners, Mike Judge and Alec Berg, when they met prior to season three. Over the course of our conversation, which took place in the San Francisco offices of Costello's new global venture capital firm, Index Ventures, we talk about his life and unusual career trajectory in the comedy world, and we talk about this latest experience with Silicon Valley, the show, and what he's been able to bring to it. Later, we headed over to San Francisco's new Alamo Drafthouse Theater for the season three premiere of Silicon Valley, and during a post-screening Q&A that I moderated with Costello, Judge, Berg, and most of the cast, it was revealed that Costello not only consulted on the season, but will also make an appearance in it. So without further ado, let's go to the longer conversation that I had with Costello before that one. Dick, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. No, it's fun. I'm happy to do it. <laughs> and very excited for tonight's festivities. We are premiering season three of Silicon Valley here in Silicon Valley. So that's a perfect place for it. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Before we talk specifically about Silicon Valley and how you came to be involved with the show, I'd like to do what we do on every episode and just kind of go back to the beginning. And first of all, ask you, where were you born and raised? And as a kid, what did you hope to do with your life? Wow. Way back to the beginning. I was born and raised outside of Detroit in a little, well, not so little town called Troy, Michigan. Just about a little ways outside of Detroit. You know, family was in the automobile industry my dad, my uncles, my grandfather, all that stuff. And as a little kid, I think I wanted to be, you know, I think my, because my grandfather told me I should be a lawyer, I wanted to be a lawyer, but only because my grandfather told me to be a lawyer. (laughs) And then, um, you know, my dad was a computer scientist. So I started tinkering with programming and computer science and went to University of Michigan and studied computer science there. Can but, I just jump in for one yeah, second? What did it mean to be a computer scientist when you were a kid? <laughs> <laughs> well, it meant learning to program like really, really, really basic stuff on really computers with very, very little memory, right. you know. 16k and 64k of memory uh, so you could only write very very simple programs so that's what it meant i had a one of those original radio shack trs80 computers in our house and i learned to program on that so you grow up around this stuff you go off to university of michigan what was your focus there well i was studying computer science but at the time 
the computer science school was in the School of Literature, Science, and the Arts. It wasn't split out into engineering yet. And so I had to have all these arts credits to graduate. And uh, my senior year, I took a couple acting classes, and I loved those. And I started doing stand-up at the student union when they would have, you know, Thursday nights. They'd have whatever comedian was going to be in Detroit that weekend would come out to Ann Arbor and do the Thursday night show there. And students would perform before whoever the pro was. So uh, that and the acting classes, I got the bug and decided when I graduated, well, I'm just going to go to Second City in Chicago and try to get into Second City instead of taking any of these programming <laughs> jobs. And so I did that. And it wasn't for lack of offers of things to do in the tech world, right? No, it wasn't for lack of offers to go do computer programming somewhere. Uh, mostly at companies that don't exist anymore, right. so probably for the best <laughs> that I didn't take them. Right. Uh, and I went to Chicago and, you know, hung out at Second City. And, uh, you know, Steve Carell and I were in the same group sort of coming up through there. Rachel Dratch is a friend from way back. And Matt Walsh, who's on Veep now, uh, the other show premiering on HBO Sunday night. I'm a good for I'm a good I'm a good I'm a good team player here helping out the cause. Right, right. But Matt and I, you know, Matt and I performed a bunch at the Annoyance Theater in Chicago before he we went and did UCB. So I know a bunch of those folks. Why is Chicago such a hotbed for comedy? Well, I think originated with Second City, you know, and in the certainly in the 80s, everyone knew that as the place that, hey, this is where the SNL, you know, minor leagues are. I mean, I'm, that's I'm sort of minor leagues is sort of denigrating Second City, which is an amazing institution. And I don't mean it that way. But everyone thought of it as when you graduate, you got to go to Second City because right. that's the path to getting to SNL or a sitcom or something if you're not a stand up comedian. And from that pool of people, you know, Improv Olympic was born with Del Close and Sharna Halpern and that sort of whole nother group of improvisers. And then, of course, Matt Besser and Amy Poehler and Ian Roberts started Upright Citizens Brigade. And so it really sort of ballooned from Second City. What were your strengths as a comedian? <laughs> if somebody, rem- um, you know, would be, if somebody remembered think, you from those days, what would they I say? I think I was quick enough as an improviser and mm-hmm. quick-witted. And my characters were like, you know, okay. I didn't do impressions like at all. I couldn't, if you told me I had to impersonate and do an impression of somebody, I couldn't do that at all. And my character work was kind of mad, but I was quick, you know, so I could hold my own improvising uh, at any length, but just wasn't really great at like developing, you know, developing a particular character. So did you at any point feel like this was a long-term career path or was it just something no I totally wanted it to be you know I auditioned for all these shows that everyone else auditioned for I just didn't get any of them (laughs) so I decided at some point like hey you know don't eat ramen noodles anymore and I got a computer science degree I should go put that to work and so how did you do that? I think it was after, was it eight years or something like that? Well, there were like seven years. Seven. It was a while. I went back and um, started working at Anderson Consulting in their systems integration practice and technology services organization. And when the internet took off, I immediately, well, for me, when it took off in 93, I was like, this is going to be, this is like this amazingly extensible environment and all these amazing things are going to be built off it. And I, I went off and started a web design and development shop right away sold that and have started several companies since then. So that first one was Burning Door Network Media? That's correct. You've and, done your homework. Uh, I, I, well you have done. to. You have to. Yeah. Well, so what was the vision of what you guys were doing there? It was, at the time, we were just doing web design and development work, like most of these sort of consulting shops that popped up around really early web 1.0, where people knew they had to understand it and have a presence on the web but didn't know anything about it. We were a development shop for those kinds of big companies that we need to do this and don't know how to do it. 
I mean, it was easy, easy. It was good money and yeah. clients were readily available. And we sold that, started another company, sold that, uh, worked there for a couple of years, started FeedBurner, and then, you know, sold that in 2007 to Google. And during that sales process is where I met, I had known Ev Williams from early, early days of the web. We had worked on this web design and development conference out in San Francisco in, I think, 94, maybe 95. I saw him again at Google because Google had bought Blogger. He was there when they were looking at buying FeedBurner. So we got reacquainted and got to know each other again. So when they went off and uh, did Odeo and then eventually Twitter, Ev contacted me and asked me to come help out. So before we get into that, what physically was the first time that you were based in Silicon Valley? What were your first impressions of Silicon Valley, the place? Well, I was living in Chicago doing these other companies. So I, I would come out here. And the fascinating thing about coming out here during the bubble, the first, the first sort of, you know, mm-hmm. 90, 98, 99, is you'd land at SFO and you'd go to visit companies you were trying to work with in Palo Alto or farther south. And Highway 101 was just jammed, you know, in the morning and in the afternoon, jammed. Just even, even trying to get down to Excited Home and, and Redwood City or something, you just took forever. And then in 2001, when we sold our company Spy on it, Coming out here, you know, between April when things started to blow up in the stock market and September when we sold our company, like you could get from point A to point B right away on 101. So my like physical association with the bubble and the bubble bursting was where did all the cars go? Right. Where are all the people? Are they just holed up in their houses? Uh, so that was a very sort of weird experience. But I didn't move out here until I started at Twitter. And that was like September 09? Yep, it was exactly September 09. And initially you Got came... out here a week before. Wow. So yeah. you were thrown right into it. Right into it. And started as the COO. Correct. It was COO for about a year, yeah. a year and a month, and then was CEO. Before you were fully CEO, it was like a temporary thing at first, right? Was he on like a paternity no, it was, it was uh, No, when I came in as COO, Ev had first asked me to just help out with operations for a couple of weeks while he was on paternity leave. They'd had their first baby. And I said, sure. And that conversation, even before I started, changed to, well, what if you came in as permanent COO? And uh, so we had that conversation and I was excited about it. And that's what we did. Wow. Well, let's pretend there's somebody listening who's never heard of Twitter. Maybe even if they have heard of it, they can't imagine what it was like in September 09. Yeah. Can you set the scene for where Twitter was at that point? Yeah, I think we were off on Bryant Street. I want to say there were about 50 of us, about you know, 25 engineers, a bunch of people in support, a bunch of people in trust and safety, because it was really starting to grow. And we had all these, you know, we've got to deal with all the same kinds of issues they deal with today. And the architecture of the service wasn't, you know, as everyone knows, it wasn't great and was crashing all the time. So we had that to deal with. We didn't really know, have any idea how we were going to make money. In fact, Ev asked me when I first came in, one of the things I need you to think about is, you know, how we're going to make money off the service. I hadn't really started to think about that yet. It was always 140 characters? It was, it was 140 characters from the get-go. And uh, we were just trying to, you know, kind of build the team as fast as we could and keep up with the crazy user growth that we were having at the time and while figuring out how we're going to make money from this thing. Why was there that crazy user growth? What sparked that interest? Well, there was a lot. Well, the guys launched it in 06, and then it kind of, you know, slowly grew. 
at South by Southwest Interactive in 2007, so spring of 2007, people started using it to say, you know, just publicly announce, hey, we're all going to be over at the so-and-so place after dinner here, meet us there. And it really kind of blew up there and grew organically from that South by Southwest Interactive stuff. And then in 09, there was the big Ashton Kutcher, CNN, who's going to get to a million followers first. And Ev went on Oprah. And that was a big sort of, you know, the awareness of it blew up and there were a ton of registrations. And we we're trying to deal with all that. So while you were the CEO, if I have my info right, company's valuation goes from $3 billion to $23 billion. The place initially... It was less than three, but but who's counting? Less than th- No, that's, it that's important info. Three. I mean, so this place obviously under your watch exploded. So what was that like to preside over? Well, it was crazy. And the weird. I think the weirdest thing about that time was, you know, as I told you, I'm a computer science guy. And for a lot of these companies like Twitter and like Facebook and Google and everything else, most of the people running these things are have software engineering backgrounds. And yet you had to start dealing with all this global geopolitical stuff. Like, you know, in, again, in 09, hey, we're doing maintenance on the site tonight. At the time, we had to take the site down to do maintenance in mid-09, um, just before I got there. And there was all this stuff going on in Iran. And, you know, the State Department's calling the company and saying, like, don't take the site down. Like, they're, people were using it in Iran to protest. And wow. it just... There just got to be more and more and more of that. Yeah. You know, I remember one staff meeting and my assistant came in the room and said, I phone for you. And I looked at her, I was like, well, I'm in my staff meeting. Tell them I'm, <laughs> like, I'm always in my staff meeting at this time. Right. Like, tell them I'll call them back. Right. And she like whispers, it's the White House. You know, like, it's the White House. <laughs> like, you know, like, I was like, and my first thought, you know, being this sort of innocent Midwest person was like, what did I do? Right. You know, what did I do <laughs> that the White House found out about and is calling me about, you know? I was like, well... Probably wouldn't be the White House. So it was like, I don't, couldn't even have imagined. I was like, what do they want? Right, you know? right. And so you would just have these kind of, you got into these conversations over the course of that five years of being CEO of that company that weren't the kinds of things I had ever dealt with before or had thought about dealing with. And it was a place where people were very happy to work. Number 24 on Fortune's list in the uh, best places to work when you, yeah. the year that you departed. Yeah. I guess just a couple of philosophical questions and then we'll go from there. But I guess... Why 140 characters? Well, it started out that way because the interchange between mobile operators on text messages back when they launched the service was 160 characters. Like if you were, you know, on Rogers, uh, AT&T in Canada and trying to message somebody on Verizon in the U.S., you know, the interchange for a block was 160 characters. So the guys, when they started it, thought, well, we'll do you know, 15 characters for the username to, so you can see who it's from and 140 characters for the message. And we'll reserve five characters for whatever we need those for. We might need those for something else later. Let's keep those (laughs) reserved. And that was the birth of that 140 characters. Of course, it's not really, you don't really need to keep it to that limit anymore. Interesting. And so how did you resolve this idea of making money when you came on the company, I believe had $0 in revenue by the time you left? 436 million. Well, 436 million in the quarter. I think we were doing a, a run rate of about two and a quarter billion wow. uh, when I left. So from zero to that. So infinite growth since we started at zero. Yeah. I had a, a inclination right away that we should build an ad platform. The issue we had was that tweets could be displayed and go anywhere, like on the web and on iPhones and on Blackberries and on 
you know, Android clients and on and on and on. And I thought like, well, we're going to have to have an ad model where the ads can go anywhere the tweets go. And that means the ads are going to have to be tweets or certainly look and feel a lot like them. And we came up with and developed this native, really, that I think I would go as far as to say, I think we originated that native ad format where the ad is a piece of content and you can do to it everything you can do to the other kinds of that content. You can retweet it, you can reply to it, you can favorite it, et cetera. And then, you know, fortunately, it really worked. Yeah. It seems like one of the rare things that you were frustrated. By the way, how similar is this podcast to the Jane Fonda one you did? <laughs> I think it's probably well, like people are, people are going to be going like, ah, oh, <laughs> this is just like the Jane Fonda one. Come on. Well, you, Let's you, talk you, about something different. <laughs> one of the few things that it seems like you were frustrated wasn't working while you were there for at least a part of the time was the regulation in a sense of bad behaved users, right? I mean, that yeah. kind of became a public thing that you were yeah. conveying it became to your... a public thing because someone leaked the email yeah. i sent to the company which you know i remember at the time i said like you know we really suck at this or something right it was like of course the first time i you know used poor grammar and an all all company-wide email mine was one my mom ends up seeing that was leaked you know right but i was just you know i'm sort of tired of getting sort of you know hit by what's it's a hugely complex challenge you've got hundreds of millions of people one person's, you know, hey, I should be able to say this on the platform because it's a political point of view is another person's, this is, you know, inflammatory and they're harassing me and they're, it's abusive speech, particularly around things like politics or religions or organizations that feel like they're religions and there are people outside those organizations who are like, no, that's a huge scam. So those kinds of things and the inflammatory language around those is super hard and challenging, and I get that. But I was frustrated with the things that I felt were very clearly just, there's no way to categorize this other than obviously spammy, abusive language that there's no benefit or or thought or political speech being derived right. from, and we got to do a better job of getting that stuff off the platform. And you guys, by the time you left, had implemented a lot of checks and balances for that kind of thing but yeah right, and it I mean, remains you know for all these platforms it remains yeah. an ongoing issue and will be for some time because it's a super hard problem and i guess just a quick follow-up on that is that people today you know you hear a lot about how some of these whether it's isis or whoever different yeah. groups they strive to take advantage of social media to recruit people and to promote their agendas and whatever is that an area for improvement for sure 100 yeah. percent. and again for all of these platforms yeah. And so we were constantly working on that and constantly looking for ways to, you know, how do we get out of this position of playing whack-a-mole where we shut down these 5,000 and they start 5,000 over there? You know, anyone can go create a free email address at, you know, any number of sites and get a new email address. You can create a new account and verify that account with your new email address. So it was just kind of this ongoing challenge. And uh, we were trying to be thoughtful about the ways to get out in front of that and and make it a lot harder to create uh, those kinds of accounts. So why last July, as happens with all CEOs at one time or another, why did your time at Twitter come to an end? Well, so at the end of 2014, I told one of the people on the board, you know, I moved out here when my daughter's in sixth grade, like literally moved out here when she's in sixth grade and, and started at Twitter a week later. And it's been go, go, go. I mean, we're working for years, crazy hours, like insane hours. And uh, she's going to be senior in high school next year, which is uh, now she's mm-hmm. finishing up mm-hmm. this month. And she's going to be senior in high school in, in September 2015. I got to, like, you know, 
I didn't start this company. I've been running it for five years. I've been here for six years. It's time for somebody else to run it. You know, we took it from zero to where we are. We're a public company. We've got more than 4,000 people in this many offices around the world. Yeah. Like, I'm done next year at some point. I'm telling only you now because I want to really think about right. it. And, you know, if you want to try to talk me out of it, I'm happy to listen to that right. before I definitively announce it. Right. But let's start thinking about what that might look like and when we want to make that decision. And over the course of the next six months and finally culminating in a board meeting, I think the very first day of June 2015, we all decided, all right, well, if we're deciding it now, and we are, I had decided at that point, it's definitive, I want to go. We have to announce it publicly within the next two weeks once you make the decision as a public company. And so Jack and uh, Dorsey and I and uh, GC basically got together and decided, look, if we're going to decide it right now, let's not have you be a lame duck CEO for six months while right. we go pick someone and the media's, you know, on us about that. And so let's just make the announcement and the transition at the same time. And that's what we did. So and we announced it on the 11th, and then we made the transition to Jack on the 1st. And you felt good about the way it all, I mean, like, it sounds like if it's ever going to end for somewhere, it's a nice way to, it, it was a... Well, I mean, with all as with all these things, you know, we were experiencing user growth challenges that we hadn't felt like we'd, you know, really gotten our arms around yet. And I would have liked to have gotten our arms around that a bit more. But at the same time, and, and those were the sort of internal debates I was having between the very end of 2014, telling the lead independent director that, and June 1st, when I told the board, look, I've decided that that six months was, you know, is now really the right time. And the fact that, you know, I wasn't going to see my probably my daughter a lot again after she ran off to college, uh, and my discussions with a couple friends was, well, look, it's never going to be the, there's going to always be some next thing you haven't done. And, you know, you got to make the decision based on what you want to do, not what everybody else inside or outside the company thinks you should do. You know, my kids had a great sense of humor about the whole thing. Like, I don't know, in like 2013, you know, we had the like the best IPO of all time and the most blah, blah, blah. And, you know, CEO, we got this like CEO of the year award. And then like literally a year later in 2014, uh, at the end of 2014, my daughter texts me and says, Dad, I have bad news and good news. I was like, what's the bad news? She says, the bad news is Yahoo Finance says you're one of the five worst CEOs of the year. <laughs> I'm like, uh, like, okay, what's the good This is all text, right, you know? Right, right. I'm like, what's the good news? She's like, you're number five, you know? So uh, it's a fickle. So that was yeah, great, you know, right. that they had a good sense of humor about it. And I right. always tried to make sure they understood look, you can't define yourself by the role you're in right now. You right. have to. So I remember one year we got invited to some thing and I didn't go and my daughter again my daughter was like well you got to go to that that's amazing you know why aren't you gonna go and I said I don't want to go to this thing because I'm the only reason I'm being invited is because I'm the CEO of Twitter when I'm not the CEO of Twitter this is gonna go to the person who's the CEO <laughs> right. of Twitter I want to go to things that I'm you know I'm going to because hey it would be great if you know Dick would come to this thing. Right. I mean, of course, you go to a bunch of different functions because you're the CEO of Twitter. But I tried to stay away from that, getting entrapped in the like, well, I don't want to leave now because I won't get to go to that crazy party next right, year. Right. And in doing that and staying away from that stuff, for the most part, it was easier to step away from it. So this may seem a little random, but during the time that your final few years at Twitter, that was when HBO was first unveiling to the world the show Silicon Valley. Yeah. Did you have any time to watch it at that point? I 
didn't watch it live, I kind of binge watched yeah. it. You know, I would catch up on it. Yeah. So I would be like on some transatlantic flight and I'd, you know, use the HBO service to catch up on it. Or I'd come home from something and I'd watch like four episodes. So I'd watch it in, in chunks, but not in real time. And, you know, right away... They did such a great job, Mike and Alec and the writers on the show, of capturing like this sort of some of the absurdities and the tone of voice of the way things were dealt with and the kind of nonsense that entrepreneurs have to go through in doing things like raising money and the craziness they have to deal with around things like raising money. And so I loved that about it. You know, I thought it was going to be, when I'd heard about the show, oh, it's going to be, you know, the CEO is going to be this sort of obnoxious jerk and they're going to satirize, you know, these obnoxious or these, you know, lofty uh, billionaire CEOs. And when I saw what they had done with it, Thomas Middleditch's yeah. character, Richard Hendricks, is this really noble, you know, wants to do the right thing right. guy. And that's the basis for the satire. It was easy to fall in love with it. And even before you became involved with it, which obviously I'll ask how that came about, but it seems like there's always been an emphasis on getting it right. Even if they're making fun of it, it's whether it's, you know, the way that some of the algorithms are actually real or the legal terms, right? I mean, talk about that. Yeah, well, they do a ton of research on the kinds of language these companies use and the way they talk about their visions and the way they talk about their culture. And they do a ton of research on how do VCs decide whether to invest in something or not? And what's the kind of language they use when they do or don't agree to invest in your company? And when they have an argument with a CEO, you know, where does that take place? Right. Does it take place in the CEO's office? Right. Would they call, ask the CEO to go out for dinner? Would they? So they're very rigorous about all that. And in doing so, you end up with this show that works for people who don't know anything about the industry because you've got these universal characters. But the situations they're in are so acutely tuned to, oh, yeah, that's exactly how that would happen. Right. That also works extremely well for the people in Silicon Valley. So that's what I wondered. How does it play here? Are, are people uh, resentful or they no. get a kick out of it? No, they're, no, they're not resentful. I think part, part of the reason they're not resentful is, of course, no one thinks it's them. Right? <laughs> oh, that's not me. That's supposed to be that other guy. Right. Uh, you know? Right. No, that's not me. Plus a bunch of them have been uh, invited in for cameos, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, right. And, yeah, there are a bunch of them are invited in for cameos. I think, generally speaking here, people know that they're making fun of the patterns, not going after specific individuals, although, you know, of course, in some cases, there probably are more like someone, right. more like person X than not. <laughs> so I think that that's what gets the appreciation from folks here, that they're making fun of the patterns and they get them so well. So how was the idea first broached that you might play a role in a behind-the-scenes capacity on the show? And obviously, consulting on a TV show is not the most expected move for a guy who's just left being the CEO of a major yeah. tech company. So yeah. did you initially uh, think it was absurd or did you go for it? No, I was had kind of two things happen at once. First thing that happened is I was having um, lunch or breakfast with Kara Swisher and, you know, what are you going to do next? And, you know, she knows the folks on the show and she knows Mike Judge and, and Alec Berg and said, I think she even said, you know, you should go work on Silicon Valley. She said, I'm going to text Mike and Alex's assistants and see if I can set, you know, have you grab lunch with them. Because she knew about your comedy background? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Karen and I have a great time on stage together when she's interviewed me at things before at yeah. Code Conference and Recode Now and et cetera. So yeah, exactly. Uh, so that happened. And I went down 
and had lunch with Mike and Alec in LA and we had a great lunch and really fun. And they were kind of setting up season three and asking me questions about how would this happen? We just had a great lunch. And at the same time, or at least around the same time, the HBO folks called Brent Weinstein at UTA, the agency, and said, you know, we really need someone to work as a sort of consultant on the show this season that can help us with you know, and Brent said, I think Dick's talking to already talking to Mike and Alec. And those things came together and we just did it. So what does it actually involve? Are you, I don't even know where their writer's room is, but are you physically it's there? The, it's Yeah, I'm physically there in the writer's room. It's a room with a big oval table and 10 writers around the table and me. And But it's L.A. or Alec, San Fran? Or sorry, it's, it? in, it's in L.A. It's on the Sony lot in okay. Culver City. So I'd fly down to LAX, Uber over to the Sony lot. And, you know, get started around 10 a.m. and go all day till 7.30 or 8. And How many days a week? I was down there two days ago. I was down there Monday, Tuesday every week until we were done. Can you give a few examples of where you can lend your expertise and background? Well, everything, like everything, you know, I mean, uh, as you probably know, the season ended last year with Richard's been fired as CEO of his company. So they need to bring in a new CEO. And so how would the VCs go about interviewing new CEOs? How would they broach the subject with the team? What would happen when the new CEO comes in? Everything from that on through, as you'll see, the things that happen throughout the season. Hey, when, you know, when this person and that person are going to go talk to Richard about trying to do this, where does that happen? And is this absurd or would that really happen? And all that kind of stuff, you know. How do these kinds of people and the engineers who are totally different kinds of people, how do they relate inside a company, right, 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 the, right. et cetera? So do you find that you, in the course of really immersing yourself in these characters, do you find that you relate to any of them in any way? Well, I relate to all of them in the <laughs> sense that, you know, they're in the struggle. Right, and the right. struggle is a real struggle. It just is. When you're an entrepreneur and you're grinding away and you're a small team and you're trying to get to point B and, you know, there are all these other giant companies around you that seemingly, seemingly, like, why is everything going so well for these other companies? It's just a constant struggle. And I think the show does a great job of capturing, you know, how are the guys going to get to point B? It does a great job of capturing that and how hard it is while making it all very funny. What are your plans with regard to the future of the show are you going to remain involved i don't have any i don't have any idea I, uh, mike and alec and i saw each other this morning and didn't didn't talk about it so yeah. i don't know i don't know what will happen i'm busy i've got a new company i've started here and i'm here at index also so i've got two things i'm doing now so we'll see what happens i'm not sure and any other hollywood related ambitions my understanding is that Lionsgate is developing a TV show about Twitter. Is that something you would have any involvement? I don't have any involvement in that. I think that's based on the Nick Bilton book from a couple of years ago. I'm not involved in that at all. Yeah, I have lots of, I would look, I would love to be more involved in the creative side of the media world just because it was something I used to do and it's something I love to do. And I had a ball doing Silicon Valley. And one of the things that jumped out at me was how extraordinarily talented everyone around the table was in the writer's room. And how, you know, Mike and Alec are particularly astute and rigorous about really getting things right. And it's one of those things that I'm sure, you know, it just seems fun. And boy, wouldn't that be fun to do on the outside? And you get inside the writers like, wow, this is really hard, you know, <laughs> and keeping the arc of the story and the narrative consistent and the structure in place and uh, keeping the, the guys, you know, noble and pursuing their goals is it's tough. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. And see you at the Q&A. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thank, thank you. Thank you.